Welcome back, people. This is Jose Nino here, bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have one of the most provocative state representatives you'll find in the nation. Anthony Sabatini is the state representative of Florida's 32nd District, and he is currently running for Congress in Florida's 7th Congressional District. How's your day going, man? Really good, man. Just uh, up here in Tallahassee in the state capitol doing a little lawmaking today. We're in session. We're in session two months a year, so we're kind of uh, almost halfway through our annual session. Great to hear. At least you're doing something unlike a lot of politicians these days that just prefer to (laughs) keep the status quo going. Well, I've written a lot about your legislative efforts at sites like Big League Politics, Liberty, Conservative News, among others. And I do genuinely view you as one of the more active proponents for liberty, conservative slash national populist legislation in this entire political space. Before we start like delving into some of the projects you're currently taking on, what originally got you into politics? It's interesting. I was not super interested in real politics, retail politics, like actually political parties and all that. Until about my mid-20s, long story short, I moved out of the state of Florida where I had grown up and uh, I moved to New York City for a job and just the experience of it. And it was the first time I was around what at the time what I just called liberalism or radical leftism. But in hindsight, it was really the beginning and the rise of wokeism, like really, really hardcore identity politics, group rights and anger, anti-white racism, all that. It just didn't really have quite that name yet or those names. And that's what kind of activated me. So, you know, by 2014, I was like, I need to get involved in politics because I feel like if these ideas I keep seeing all around me take hold, it's going to probably destroy the country. And literally, I just registered Republican. It was uh, late 2013. And uh, I started getting involved in the party. By the way, I moved to New York the exact same week that Bill de Blasio was elected the mayor of New York, November 2013. They have odd year elections there. And uh, that was interesting. So yeah, long story short, I started getting increasingly more involved. And then when I decided to go to law school the following year, I ran for city council right after that and did two years on city council, four years in the state house, and now I'm running for Congress. But it all has been a whirlwind. And the thing that's really kept me going is my extreme dissatisfaction and disappointment and sheer anger towards do nothing, defensive mindset type Republican politicians. The left, I hate, and it blows my mind. But what really makes me indignant is Republicans who don't use power yes, and don't do really quite anything. And that's the thing that's made me stay in politics and continue to do it. And I don't think I see myself coming out of it anytime soon, as long as the Republican Party is in the shape it's in today. Yeah, I can relate to your last point because I come from a grassroots lobbying background. I used to work for a Second Amendment lobby, the National Association for Gun Rights. I did like email marketing and even the occasional lobbying operations. And I learned firsthand how feckless the Republican Party can be and how you ultimately have to put a lot of pressure on them because as they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So you have to be relentless. Now, you've been serving in the Florida State House since 2019. And in your time in office, what have you learned so far about like the political process in Florida specifically? 
A lot. I mean, uh, I was a lawyer going through University of Florida Law School while I was like, serving on the city commission and learned a lot about lawmaking going into uh, session. The biggest surprise, though, is how much uh, in legislative bodies, how much power the average member gives back to the what they call the leadership or leadership team. So like the dominant players, your Mitch McConnell types at the state level. That was probably the biggest learning effect is why are people giving up their power and sort of falling in line and instead of trying to influence the process in different ways. That was the biggest learning lesson. But um, it's very hierarchical, you know, in the uh, state legislatures. And uh, that's probably the biggest lesson that you need to sort of react to and think about and try to change. I think if you want to be an effective state legislator, I mean, I've passed a bunch of bills. I've had five of my bills signed a law by DeSantis. But even though now I'm in a posture where the leadership sees me as very too adversarial and wouldn't pass one of my bills, I have far more power now than I did when I was playing by the rules because a lot of times, you know, bill making, lawmaking, whatever matters less than controlling the conversation and moving, putting pressure on basically incumbents and pushing the party or people who have power to do different things or at least talk different ways than it would be if you're just carrying bills and involved in the rudimentary part of politics, like running some bill that cleans up a statute or a law. And uh, that's the one thing I try to teach people when they first get in is that you need to kind of really go out there and be aggressive and change the conversation and push back. Because if not, you know, the bigger the bigger picture, and we can obviously go into it, whether you're talking about Americanism and America first issues and sovereignty or liberty and limited government, nothing's going to change unless you're really pressuring the Republican Party because it's built in to resist any kind of positive change. Yeah, I've picked that up as well through my experience working with several constitutional carry champions nationwide that it's ultimately the bomb throwers that move the conversation and get controversial legislative items to be voted on because when you try to play the whole conventional political game, it's effectively a fool's errand because these politicians are always trying to assimilate potential subversives and make them into like just like politician X that just goes along to get along and not do anything meaningful Whereas a bomb thrower can absolutely change like the political reality. Like ultimately, like inertia is like the biggest force in politics. And if you don't really put external pressure on politicians, whether it's through like grassroots activism or having a guy on the inside that's like the vehicle for the grassroots or a combination of both, you're basically going to have like the same stuff happen. And that's just like the long and the short of it. That's exactly right. Yeah, in your case, you're a very issue-driven guy. You aren't just like sounding off about how the Republican Party should change, but you've put your money where your mouth is and introduced legislation that advances conservative slash America first principles. What are some of the key agenda items that you're focusing on at the moment? There's a few right now, and sometimes there'll be a week or two weeks where you're focused only on one right now. It's really just a, you know, purely state issue that's taking all of my time, power, and kind of rhetorical focus, which is constitutional carry. Very simple bill that you're obviously very intimately uh, acquainted with. It's, yes. it's a bill that says you shouldn't. Uh, the way I explain it to people who don't understand it is the First Amendment and the Second Amendment should not be treated, you know, very differently. I don't believe that it would be constitutional for a person to have to 
ask for permission, pay money, and require training before they can speak their mind and express their First Amendment rights or go to church. So why is the Second Amendment being treated differently? Why is the Second Amendment, why is it that you're required to receive training, pay money, do an application, get a permit, you know, comply with a thousand different laws? It doesn't make any sense. And also to hire the firearm that you have. So constitutional carry is open carrying, permitless carry. Super interesting issue. Once again, shocking it hasn't passed already. Why we have we had a Republican trifecta in Florida for coming up on almost 30 years now, and uh, we still can't pass this bill. So that's where I'm putting all my focus. I was the first person to ever file it in the history of the state of Florida two years ago, and we're still fighting. And, you know, being a political official, but also, you know, trying to be an effective one, which means being sort of an activist too, we put enough, so much pressure on the establishment that, that everyone's sort of caving. The Senate president finally said he would vote up on the bill. The governor said he would do the bill, even though he's been kind of quiet about it. He would sign the bill. Other members are signing up. So that's the focus right now. It's shifting very quickly to another important bill that I filed that wasn't getting, it got a lot of attention in the late summer, then it kind of disappeared. And now it's getting very popular again, mostly because of the segment on Tucker Carlson last night. But I filed a bill that would essentially nullify and keep the state from ever working or recognizing the authority of the Capitol Police. You might know that the Capitol Police is opening up field offices across the country. They're very active in California and Florida. Obviously, California is a blue state, but has just as many Republicans as any state based on size. And they're in the field interviewing people and harassing people and spying. And so I have done a bill that would ban the Capitol Police from Florida, and it's starting to get a lot more attention in the last day or two. And this is a bill that needs to get passed. The establishment staunchly opposed because they don't like anything that's nuanced like that. And they just generally don't like any kind of controversial bill whatsoever. They're usually pushing bills that just placate their donors and special interests that are helping them with their political campaigns and not focused on the bigger picture. And uh, so those are two of the bills, but there's a host of other things. COVID, I'm mostly known for my response to COVID. I was probably the first elected official in the country to speak out against school closures, definitely lockdowns, mask mandates. As a lawyer, I sued 14 cities and counties that had mask mandates was the only elected official for about 100 days beating the drum, doing rallies and trying to get the word out on banning private sector vaccine mandates, not the public ones, but the private ones that were being instituted independent of Joe Biden, independent of CMS or OSHA. And uh, eventually we built so much pressure that DeSantis was forced to call the legislature back in session and we banned those private sector mandates to a certain extent. So that's the kind of stuff I'm involved in right now. What about immigration? Have you introduce any bills dealing with both illegal and legal immigration? Yes, exactly. I have, and definitely both accounts. I'm running for Congress, so I speak often uh, as much as I possibly can about an immigration moratorium. I think we need to stop the broken, insane immigration system we have right now, which is, I think is actually even more harmful, as counterintuitive as this sounds, even more harmful than our illegal immigration problem is, is the structure of legal immigration in this country. Fully agreed. But at the state level, there's very little I can do about that policy. So what I push is a complete and total shutdown and clamp down on illegal immigration, which, you know, you're going to hear all these fancy, silly, eye-popping ways of people saying, we're going to, you know, fight against illegal immigration in X, Y, or Z ways. But the truth is, the only really effective, sure-proof, 100% way to do it is by stopping employers from being able to offer a job to an illegal alien. So I have filed for three years now a bill in Florida to make E-Verify, the E-Verify system, 
mandatory and also with criminal and civil penalties for those who don't apply. If you did that, I mean, literally all 1 million illegal immigrants in Florida would leave. Now, hopefully they left the country, but of course they could possibly go somewhere else. But the good news is it would be better for Florida. So E-Verify is a great system that works well and really fixes the problem in a, in a realistic way. There's a lot of these fancy bills, like I mentioned earlier, that are just stupid, that get all this attention that aren't real. Like right now, Florida's pushing through a bill that says we're going to find transportation companies that have illegal immigrants on them. I totally agree with the bill. I think it's a fine bill. Go ahead and support it. And that's great. But to think that that's going to stop illegal immigrants from coming to Florida is just kind of just a circus act. It's ridiculous. It's funny to even think that that would keep an illegal immigrant from coming to Florida for a job. E-verify and employer verification is the only way to clamp down on the problem. You got to turn the faucet off if you want to stop illegal immigration into the country. And uh, that's what I'm focused on here. Yep. I agree on all fronts. I'm a big Pat Buchanan guy, one of like the principal people that got me into politics. And I agree that like there needs to be like an immigration moratorium because like the U.S., Basically, like it has had like immigration, but the caveat is it occurs in waves and there are legislative and natural pauses for immigration to encourage like assimilation and protect American workers. And I think we're like long overdue for an immigration moratorium ever since the passage of Hart Seller in 1965. Now, yeah, going back to constitutional carry, because it is like a pet issue of mine. And I, I also like stress the point because I, I actually do genuinely believe it has a lot of lessons for the right because it is the most successful legislative initiative that the right has been able to push in the last two decades. And the numbers speak for themselves. When Barack Obama took office in 09, there were only two constitutional carry states in the nation. Those were Alaska and Vermont. Now we have 21 and potentially we could see all red states have said legislation by the end of this decade, if things go right. Now, I will stress this, like the road to passing constitutional carry is not easy. And I imagine it's the case in Florida. Who would you say are the primary figures that are preventing constitutional carry from being passed in Florida? The Speaker of the House. So the Speaker of the House in the state of Florida is a really milquetoast moderate sort of traditional centrist to center right, depending on the issue, Republican, really bland, very close with Jeb Bush. He's from the Jeb Bush wing of the party. Always talks about, you know, third way of doing things and getting along, getting past partisan divides, yada, yada, yada. His biggest priority is fighting climate change and, you know, all this stuff. Basically, we have this good governor and DeSantis gives this halo effect to the state. So everyone's like, oh my God, everything in Florida is so great and so based and et cetera. And they don't realize that our legislature is not exempt from the same internal battle between rhinos and, you know, the corrupt establishment versus people who are actually trying to create a good change for conservatism, traditionally defined or American first issues, whatever, than any other state. It's no different. So He's standing in the way of constitutional carry. He's a big proponent of red flag laws and various other, you know, in their Orwellian language, quote, you know, common sense, <laughs> gun control, whatever. He wrote the big gun control package four years ago after there was a school shooting. They passed a host of new gun control laws. He wrote those. So he's the opponent to that. He's also the opponent of my bill to stop a ban on transgender surgeries. He's a opponent of my bill to do E-Verify in the state of Florida, a stronger big tech censorship law, pretty much everything. He's 
he really does believe that the Republican base is a bad thing. He's not a good, not a good guy. Yeah, this guy reminds me a lot of several House speakers in my time working in Texas politics, such as Joe Strauss and Dennis Bonin, and good riddance that they're gone because since they've left, Texas has at least like marginally moved in the right direction when it comes to constitutional carry. But this is a very common theme throughout state legislatures across the nation that I tell people about because politicians regardless of what state they're in, whether it's like a blue state, swing state, or whatever, a red state, they're wired very similarly. And you have to like approach them in a really strong manner because all things being equal, they will try to scuttle any types of genuine reforms. So go towards your federal campaign because you're running for Congress now, as specifically Florida's 7th Congressional District. What prompted you to run for higher office? Well, so I always stayed in politics, like I mentioned earlier, because the Republican establishment is just so bad at their job and and really not doing anything. And it infuriated me to know that my own elected officials were going to be people who weren't fighting or getting involved, you know, on the issues that I think mattered, which are more than what the Republican Party traditionally talks about. So I was a city commissioner and uh, the first big controversies in the city commission on a City commission of, you know, a city of 20,000 people called Eustis near Orlando, Florida. It was all Republicans on the city commission. And uh, one of the first battles was uh, concerning removal of Confederate monuments. So, you know, obviously I was staunchly opposed to removing any Confederate monuments in the state of Florida. And I was very vocal about it and sort of the weak, chambery, you know, milquetoast Republican <laughs> moderates that were serving with me were really quite the opposite. And so that that was one of the, I think, first telltale signs to say, okay, well, obviously the peop- these people don't see the bigger picture about policing speech and symbols and whitewashing American history and erasing Americanism and, you know, lessons of American history. And so that's a problem. And so that's one of the things that's kept me in is I, I've always thought, you know, if nobody's going to fight for like really common sense anti-PC stuff, then I have to stay in. (laughs) So that's literally it. I would have been happy to go do something else, but I've always stayed in politics because there's not enough Republican officials that will talk about anything other than really mild tax cuts for giant woke corporations. That's pretty much the only thing they talk about. Yeah, that's like the really, the only like acceptable topics they'll broach in today's like increasingly narrow political discourse. And it's pretty pathetic, but that's like comes with the territory with dealing with Republicans. Now, if you're elected, I imagine you will be linking up with several national populist figures in Congress. Who are your favorite politicians at the federal level? And who do you have plans to work with if you're elected to the U.S. House? Yeah, so I'm endorsed by a lot of my favorite elected officials already, which are Congressman Matt Gates, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar. Those are the ones who've endorsed me. I'm endorsed by all of them. Major, you know, General Michael Flynn, a few others. Rand Paul, one of my favorite senators. And, uh, you know, if I had to add a few other to the list that I really like is I like the freshman Congressman Rosendale from Montana. He's been really vocal. Thomas Massey, very uh, strong conservative and big on the liberty issues that I care about, too. And, uh, you know, there's obviously a few others. I like Senator Josh Hawley. I think he's great. So, but that's just a, a few I mean, a lot of the Freedom Caucus members and then what I call like the informal America First Caucus, 
which doesn't exist, but it's sort of an identifiable group. That's who I plan to work with. And people always ask me when I'm going to file. I mean, I'll file some good stuff, but a lot of it's just going to be co-sponsoring because Massey and Gates and Green and Gosar have a bunch of great bills, whether it's immigration moratorium, shutting down the Department of Education. These bills are all already filed. So I'll just come in and slide in and co-sponsor a lot of those bills that exist already. Awesome. Yeah, that's good to hear because there ultimately has to be a America First coalition in Congress to even see any type of reform. It's basically a numbers game. Once you have at least like 10% of like the U.S. House and like Senate, you can start actually exerting power there. Now, going back to Florida, where do you see the state's politics heading in the next decade or so? Well, we're really at a turning point. I mean, DeSantis is pushing the state politics to go in a more populist direction, which I strongly welcome. And it's happening quick, not quick enough, in my opinion, but it's happening quick and it's it's a positive direction. But we don't know if how long that's going to last or how far it's going to go. But I've always said to people, you know, the Republican state legislatures and Republican red states, the elected officials, they use about one tenth of the power that they have. I would be shocked if I found a single state that uses 210. People say Florida is doing a great job and they're super base and all this. And they are doing better than other states, but there's so much, so much more we could be doing right now to push back against the federal government and promote Americanism and shut down the Marxist institutions and insane things happening in the state right now that we're not doing because people are distracted (laughs) and focusing on stupid bills and just silly things that don't matter. So that's what I would say. You know, we I think we're going in the right direction, but we really need to pick up the speed. And we can't let the establishment do what they do, which is they take the populist energy and just make people feel like everything is just dandy and perfect and nothing needs to change. You keep hearing this phrase like, keep Florida red. You know, we're great. Keep Florida red. Everything's perfect right now. We just don't need the change. And that's just not how you win in a culture war or a political war. You have to go on offense. Like even when you have control and you know, we're doing some good things. We need to be really defunding and destroying the left in our state, like shutting down leftist institutions and taking their power away so they can never beat us, just like the left would do to us if they had power and and controlled the gears of power. It's just common sense, but people are just so beaten down by everything happening. They, They start to believe that, you know, we're doing great here and there's nothing else we need to do, to put it simply. Yeah, here, here, man, that's, basically the main issue of the Republican Party, because as I say, complacency is the cousin of political death. And that's how a lot of our liberties die when people become too complacent. And the GOP and a lot of state legislatures, when they get their super majorities, they just rest on their laurels and do nothing. Now, before we wrap things up, do you have any final comments for people who are just getting into politics and like how what you would recommend they do in order to be as politically effective as possible? Well, the first thing they need to do is build up their support base, grassroots movement. They need to really use social media and in-person gatherings to get a giant list of supporters. I mean, I recruit people all the time. I'm running five primary folks. I've recruited five or six different primary elections to sitting incumbents and teaching people how to fundraise and get their message out. But the thing they need to do is be decisive and weigh in on the issues that matter. You know, whether it be big tech censorship, election fraud, immigration, whatever, come in, have a position, 
you know, delineate your position from the opponent that you want to beat or the person you're trying to remove and uh, start activating your base and get that grassroots energy on your side. And that's hard to simplify. I mean, it's hard to teach, but, you know, once somebody can do that, then it doesn't matter what issue they weigh in on. They have the ability to affect change. And uh, if they don't, and if they don't have a real organic support base, fundraising, door knocking, rallies, social media, whatever, then they're going to be they're going to be weak and dependent upon the establishment. And that's a lot of the incumbents in state legislatures. They're dependent upon donors from special interests and the Republican establishment helping them get reelected. So they're afraid to step out of line with their party or push their party because they think they'll just be exterminated. And so they, they have to find a way to have an independent existence. And that's the most important thing they can learn early on. Great stuff, Anthony. Well, I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this discussion. Again, Anthony, thank you so much for taking out of your busy day to chat. Where can my listeners stay up to date on the latest news for your campaign? Yeah, so my website obviously is going to be key. It's sabatiniforcongress.com. That'll keep people up to date on what we're doing and got some issue stuff on there, my endorsements, all the rest of it. But my social media pages. I'm very, very, very active on daily from Gab and Getter all the way to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, whatever they use. I'm on everything and uh, pretty much everything but Gab. I'm on there daily. Gab, obviously, you got to be at your computer to update. So that one I only post a little bit less frequently. But yeah, check out my social media profiles and, of course, Twitter at Anthony Sabatini and uh, let them know what we're doing here in Florida and what I plan to do in D.C. Awesome. Well, that's all for today, folks. Until next time, El Nino has spoken.